Hi, I'm John Foster. Hi, I'm Josh White. And this is Left to Burn, the podcast of thebattleground.eu. There were two union certification elections among Amazon workers in the United States, one in Staten Island, formerly a borough of New York City, and the other in Alabama. First one they won after a fairly close vote. The second one they lost. Although, as I understand it, that was the second time they voted and it was closer this time than it had been the last time. So you can tell when things like this are about to happen to Amazon because they go into full court press mode. You'll see lots of ads on television where Amazon warehouse workers talk about how great it is to work there, how they start at $15 an hour, which to be fair, is more than a lot of people are making in the United States. There was one ad that I saw, this wasn't on so recently, but I, it did surprise me when I saw it where the person who was on the ad was talking about how they were trans and how their supervisor had advocated for them in some way. It wasn't exactly clear what they had done in this respect, but even to say the word trans on a, an advertisement in the continental United States is a pretty intense deviation from the norm. So you could tell that this is something that Amazon really doesn't want because their whole business model is predicated on trying to raise the intensity of exploitation to levels not really seen since the Gilded Age in the United States. Moves to unionize Amazon facilities are happening elsewhere. There have been a number of strikes, sort of mini strikes, undertaken by Verdi in Germany. There was one in November or late October, I believe. And then there was another one just in last month where workers at Amazon facilities across Germany were striking for increased pay and benefits. The pay at Amazon facilities in Germany, as I understand it, is closer to the German baseline. I think the German Minimum wage is something like nine euros and 50 euro cents per hour, something like that. The rate of pay at Amazon facilities is somewhat higher than that, but $15 an hour is noticeably higher for whatever that's worth. I think these are all positive signs. Maybe not the sign that some sort of revolutionary change in the state of organized labor is happening, but given the way things have been going, this is definitely an improvement. Yeah, absolutely. We've had similar trends in the UK for the last few years in terms of gig economy organizing. We've not had anything like this with regard to Amazon. Yeah, the United States used to have a pretty significant labor movement. I think probably anybody listening to this will at least have some inkling, especially in the 1920s and 30s, especially during the era of the New Deal when the presidential administration was somewhat sympathetic to union organizing, the rise of the American Federation of Labor and the Congress of Industrial Organizations who eventually merged into the AFL-CIO. And they were fairly strong, fairly active through the 1950s and 1960s. There's an interesting story, and this is probably apocryphal, but it conveys an important truth. One of the latter progeny of Henry Ford was walking around a newly automated factory with Walter Ruther, the head of the United Auto Workers, which was one of the most powerful and up to a point had been one of the most militant unions in the United States, although by the 1950s they had really moved into the whole bread and butter unionism approach. Anyway, Henry Ford says to Walter Ruther, how are you going to get these robots to join your union? And Walter Ruther responded by saying, your problem is how are you going to get them to buy your cars? And that's a big issue for how the labor movement is going to develop. One of the big changes in the way labor was viewed in the early 20th century was that Henry Ford, who was not a very nice human being, I mean, they used to give away copies of the protocols, the elders of Zion with, with your new Model T or whatever, but he at least recognized that workers had to have money in their pockets in order to buy the commodities that were being produced. And so wages at the Ford plant tended to be relatively higher than they were in other places. And the reason very explicitly was that they wanted to make sure that workers could actually buy 
the stuff. And that's one of the big dimensions of automation, of the question of the development of automation. Sure, you can automate factories, but the question then is going to be, who's going to buy the stuff that they produce? And they've yet to come to a very good answer to that question. Although, by the same token, the sky is falling narrative about automation hasn't come to pass yet. Doesn't mean it's not going to come to pass or doesn't mean that it's not identifying a trend that's going on. But as yet, there's still a lot of humans working in factories. Yeah, and broadly, the system is running on fumes, whether we're talking about European economies, the United States or Britain, because the whole model of kind of neoliberalism that we were running on for 30 years no longer works because of the degree to which people are hocked up with so much debt. It's not like you can use credit to substitute for wage increases anymore, at least not to the same degree as you used to be able to, you know, in the 90s and 2000s. And at the same time, there's an opening because of COVID-19 and the lockdowns. They've created a, a time where there's a, a crisis in terms of the shortage of labor versus the demand for it. At least that's the case of the UK to that extent. So this comes at a moment where there could be a transition to a different kind of capitalism that's been on the cards for several years at least it looks like we've been transitioning to something for five to ten years it's just not fully emerged yet yeah that's definitely representative conditions in the united states as well and i think across europe for what that's worth the situation with covid the lockdowns the change in patterns of demand have resulted in a situation in which workers have felt more willing to turn down jobs that offer crap conditions or crap pay and so what we can see is a change, at least to some degree, in the relative levels of power, whether that will last. I mean, this is the kind of thing that generally needs to be followed up with the development of organization because owners of capital tend to only listen to the demands of the workers when they're compelled to. There's an interesting article in The Guardian that I read the other day where the guy was saying, well, you know, there's this change that's going on in the United States. There have been these successful unionization votes at Amazon. A couple of different Starbucks locations have voted to unionize. But he was saying, really, that's not that big a deal. If you look at the sort of long-term trend of labor organization, it continues not to be very good. Labor continues to be fighting a losing battle. And that's true, but the turnaround has to happen somewhere. The question is, once you get these moments where labor begins to assert itself, can they create the institutions which will allow them to continue that development to possibly change the direction things are going? Certainly, if it remains a sort of acephalous here and there kind of situation, then as soon as the pendulum swings back to the other side, as it's very likely to do, chances are the dynamic that's been going on for 25, 30, 40 years will continue as it has done. So once again, the question is, can the kind of broad scale organizing happen that will allow the labor movement to change the balance of forces in a more permanent fashion actually go on? Or is it just going to continue to be one here, one there? Yeah, there's a lot of uncertainty about this, but I think it's clear that there's a very big opportunity here for organizing in terms of like non-traditional unions or what you might call new sectors, you know, all this kind of euphemistic language around the gig economy and the sharing economy and, and so on. Very misleading language. But these are sectors that have been traditionally neglected by the older unions that are more sectoral based or more, more centered around what you might call like brick and mortar industries. The new tech sectors have been the wild west for, well, since they were first formed, I think. Well, the interesting thing about the tech sectors at in the last 25 or 30 years is starting when technology companies began to need large numbers of code writers, etc. 
the larger problem really is that, you know, so you hear this talk about automation and the type of changes that automation is likely to cause in the structure of industrial production. But there's a really a failure to understand this process in a lot of dimensions. I mean, one of the big promises that Donald Trump was offering up to his supporters was that he was going to compel companies to reshore factories in the United States. Now, it's debatable whether you can do that. He was signally unsuccessful in doing so. But although you can incentivize putting the factories here, the question remains, can you incentivize hiring people? And the answer so far really has been no. So the question is, how does neoliberal capitalism function going forward where it has progressively less need for a population of people willing to be variable capital, for lack of a better term? And that's a real problem because profit predominantly comes from the intensified exploitation of people. If you're producing with the Widgetmatic 5000, chances are relatively soon, everybody producing in your line is gonna have the Widgetmatic 5000. It's gonna make X many widgets per hour, irrespective of whether you want it to work harder. So this creates a competitive problem because if you can't differentiate yourself on price and you're not producing something different than other people in your line, what you get is the effects of the law of the tendency of the rate of profit to fall. A big debate among Marxists. But the problem then is, too, if you have all this surplus population, what is it that you do with them? And one of the interesting things about COVID was that there was a kind of upsurge in public protest and public demonstration. And one of the reasons was because people didn't have to be at work for eight, eight and a half, nine, ten hours a day. And idle hands are the devil's plaything. I mean, I think this is the basis for a lot of what was detailed by David Graeber in, in Bullshit Jobs, that there's, there are a lot of jobs being done that don't need humans doing them. But the last thing that owners of capital want is people with a lot of time on their hands looking at their situation and maybe deciding, hey, since I have all this free time, maybe I'll do something to try and get organized or improve my situation rather than just going and applying at 20 McDonald's to try and get into bullshit jobs forever. You also have phenomena like the Great Resignation and the so-called idler movement in the US. And I think there are parallel movements in many other countries by other names, essentially where people are choosing to drop out of high-stress jobs in favor of jobs that are much easier to do that may not pay as well, but it's an easier lifestyle, as it were. And those people have shown solidarity in the US with people trying to organize in their workplaces by filing phony job applications to some of these places, I think, as scab workers, effectively. Yeah, I think if you talk to practically anybody who's working for a wage at this point, I, I mean, I've done this experiment myself in, in various places that I've worked, ask somebody... If your employer came to you and said, we're going to pay you the same amount of money, but you only have to work half as many hours. And if you work the standard eight hours, we would pay you twice as much. Which would you choose? Practically every single person I've ever posed that question to has immediately gone for, I'll go for taking the same amount of money for working half as much. This whole Protestant work ethic in which your goal in life is to accumulate as much as possible and work itself has a virtue over and above the remuneration associated with it. There's this idea that labor itself is noble, which really runs aground on flipping burgers for eight bucks an hour for 10 hours a day. There's no dignity in that. Basically, it's like that line from the Clash song, the only job they offer you is to keep you at the dock. It's good for the stability of the social order that people are spending all their time doing these bullshit jobs, that people have their health care linked to them. I mean, this is a big thing in the United States. If you are considering changing jobs or if you run afoul of your employer, there's a good chance that 
This will negatively affect your situation vis-a-vis -vis health insurance. And also, if you have a condition and you have a gap in your health insurance coverage, you then have a pre-existing condition, which makes it much more difficult to get properly insured. And this is a really funny thing. One of the problems that Mitt Romney had when he ran for president, he had so many, but one of the big problems that Mitt had was he came out and said, I like to fire people, by which he was trying to allude to the idea that there's a kind of market for healthcare. But let's be clear, the market for healthcare is the predominant example of market failure that you could possibly adduce. And the fact of the matter is, the greatest fear of most Americans, not people in the kind of income bracket that Mr. Romney is in, but most Americans, is that their health insurance company is going to fire them. I mean, it's a seller's market. And a lot of times they just won't sell to you if you don't fit in the sort of actuarial model such that they think that they can realize maximal profits out of use. This has created a situation in which your obligation, your need to stay in a particular job is not just about that paycheck every couple of weeks or every month or however often, but it's about not finding yourself in the hospital facing a quarter million dollar hospital bill, which basically means go to the poorhouse for the rest of your life, do not pass go, do not collect $200. Yeah, it's a trap for millions and millions of people. And that's why it's all the more courageous and remarkable what's happened with Amazon. Hopefully it, it goes much further than that. And it's also surprising that it's happened in the United States as opposed to a European country. Although, as we've alluded to, there have been similar developments in Europe. It's just, we haven't seen unionization against Amazon, I don't think so anyway. Yeah, the situation of trade union organizing in Germany is much different than it is in the United States, probably in the UK as well. There's a lot more sectoral bargaining in Germany. And even in the wake of the Hartsphere labor market reforms, so-called, unionized workers are still in a much better position vis-a-vis -vis their employers than they are in certainly in the United States, also probably in, in most places in Western Europe. So it's not surprising to me that unionization, especially with respect to Amazon, has taken off in Germany. And it's not surprising to me that German workers have shown themselves more willing to be militant in the face of the heightened exploitation that Amazon likes to expose their workers to. I mean, the funny thing about Amazon, too, is I think about an Amazon warehouse and I think to myself, what would be a better locus for automation than an Amazon warehouse? You really don't need humans doing a lot of that, as far as I can tell. I mean, I've never worked in an Amazon warehouse. To a certain extent, I'm just guessing. But it really seems like it wouldn't be too hard to automate that. But it illustrates, once again, this idea that it's important to keep people involved in the process because otherwise, what else are they going to do? Yeah, there's a kind of dystopian level of exploitation here. But I'm guessing if you remove the human element, you'd have to fall back on humans in terms of supervision and backup to robot stacking shelves in warehouses and loading things and so on. Occasionally, they would get the goods mixed up, I'm sure, and that kind of thing. Interestingly, it's also linked to the rise of populism. And one thing we were talking about before we came on air here was the election that's going on in, or about to happen in France. Emmanuel Macron just the other day gave a speech that went on for two and a half hours in front of 30,000 fans with pumping music. And this was the first time that he'd really come out and campaigned, as I understand it. I mean, he had only announced that he was going to run again very late in the process. He's been focused on Ukraine Apparently, he also, I mean, at this point, he has, I think, about a 6% lead on Marine Le Pen. And his number one quality, I think, in terms of a large proportion of the French political class and probably the French electorate, is that he's not Marine Le Pen. The French unemployment rate has come down, the degree to which he's responsible for that, debatable. He's talking about, in his next term, wanting to bring the retirement age down by a couple of years. I think it's 67 now. I think they're talking about bringing it down to 65. But Macron is not one of these. It's hard to get really passionately 
attached to Macron. Like, what is he really, who is he? What is he for? He's this sort of technocrat. And his idea is, well, I can make the economy work and I'm not Marine Le Pen. The problem is Marine Le Pen is a problem that keeps returning. I mean, this is the problem with populism more generally in Europe and the United States, that even if Viktor Orban were to retire from politics tomorrow, the symbolic force of populism isn't going to go away. I mean, it's like, you know, once you've created a, a market or a demand for a certain kind of thing, the fact that the precise thing that you made it for might be going away doesn't mean that the more general demand doesn't remain. I mean, it's like you get a bunch of people smoking lucky strikes and then you stop producing them. It doesn't mean people are going to stop smoking. It means they're going to smoke camels or Marlboros or whatever. And I think this is the case with populism. Even if Trump were to keel over tomorrow from an overdose of filet of fish, doesn't mean that populism as a political project or as an electoral proposition is going to disappear from the United States. It just means that somebody else is going to be running it. And I think this is the thing that has to really be understood fundamentally about the way politics are now, especially given the way that the labor market has been changing lately. Absolutely. It's very much true in France where you've had a crisis of deindustrialization. You have a rust belt. It's not gone as far as it has in the UK, but it's still the case that the French industrial base is shrinking and the labor unions are more on a defensive position than they have been in the past. They are very good at defending their gains by comparison to British trade unions, despite being much smaller. It's kind of an interesting irony there that UK has a higher union density than France, but French trade unions are much more effective. And the reasons for that are structural. However, at this time, you have a, a president who's a kind of extreme centrist. He's picked up where Hollande and Sarkozy left off. And he's kind of taking the project of overhauling the French welfare state and regulation to its ultimate end. If he can actually achieve that in a second term, that's uncertain. He's undoubtedly going to come up against a lot of resistance. He already has in the form of the Gilets Jaunes movement and in the form of other protests and strikes. And this isn't over by any stretch of the imagination. And again, it's hardly a certainty that he can win a second term. If he wins a second term, he'll be the first French president to do so in 20 years. He will be booking a significant trend of instability in terms of who, who occupies the Elysee Palace. Relative instability, I should stress. And Le Pen is a kind of jack-in-the-box that keeps coming back again and again because the conditions which produce that kind of right-wing nationalist populism are not going away. If anything, they're getting worse. And there's a kind of proliferation of populisms in France at the moment. You have Eric Zemmour, the far-right journalist who peddles conspiracy theories about Muslim immigration. And he's been threatening Le Pen's position in the polls. What we may see is the far-right vote reconsolidate around Le Pen in the second round. That seems quite likely. It's also possible that the polling is a bit off. It may be that Le Pen won't be in the second round. It may even be far closer in terms of a Macron-Le Pen rerun than it was in 2017. And that is very bad news for the French political establishment. And yeah, people around Macron are probably quietly very happy about this because it, if they can win a second term, it's reinforced their position to basically continue as they have. Macron has survived as a political centrist by taking up elements of populism and kind of moulding them into his own agenda. He's basically operated as an authoritarian and a populist figure in a similar way to Boris Johnson, just with different ends. Yeah, he's relied on emergency powers again and again, and there's no sign of him giving up on that. And his foreign and domestic agenda remains this kind of extreme centrist model, albeit with a populist foil. And he's shown a willingness to talk up 
xenophobic policies towards Muslims, which have been mainstream in France for a long time at this point. Marine Le Pen is just a figure pushing it much further. Yeah, there's a center-left discourse of anti-Muslim thought, feeling, what have you, in France, associated with the idea of laïcité, the republic as not connected to a kind of religious project or what have you. But the interesting thing about Macron's situation right now is that six percentage points is alarmingly close to the statistical error rate. And since the whole Trump-Hillary-Clinton thing, one really has to take political polling with a grain of salt, even though I, th I think it's actually gotten a bit better. It's still hard to read, especially given the way that populism works, the kind of symbolic chains. I mean, not to get too Laclau here on everybody, but Laclau has his problems. But the idea that political positions are based on these symbolic chains that kind of fit together goes a long way to explaining why the traditional model of republicanism in which informed people debate topics reasonably, rationally, what have you, and then they make a sort of informed decision about what the right thing is. The formation of these symbolic chains means that it's very hard to break into these discourses that act as the basis to an extent for moderate center-left if there is any center left anymore, democratic thought, but also, and more explicitly in populism, which has a whole series of, you know, the brown people are coming for you. The elites just want to shut down your ability to destroy protected wildlife areas or whatever. But, I mean, it's so, it's interesting. And the really sort of alarming thing about it is that it's not going to go away because it's so fundamentally linked into the way neoliberalism is functioning or declining to function at the current moment. I mean, if you look at, the situation in terms of demographics all the way across the industrialized world. They're all having noticeable demographic declines. So in order to keep neoliberal capitalism functioning in the way that it has, it needs to be leavened with people from the global south. But it's at the same time important that those people are characterized as a threat, as something that has to be managed or manipulated in terms of the carceral state to keep them from coming after white women. So when people wonder why it is that populism continually has this traction, it's not because people are stupid. It's because the incentive structure in the system works in a certain way. And the, the symbolic content of the system is structured in a certain way. The popularity, so to speak, of populism is not so much a matter of individual inclinations, it's a matter of the sorts of incentives that the system is putting out. So it's not surprising that it persists in getting traction. And it's not surprising that certain political groups in the United States, in Great Britain, in France, in Germany, persist in making use of that effectively to insert themselves into the political process. Another key aspect of this that I want to stress is that there is another populism in France as well that we shouldn't overlook. And that is the left populist figure, Jean-Luc Mélenchon has established himself over the course of the last five to ten years as an alternative candidate to the Socialist Party and to other small left-wing parties, basically, but mainly as an alternative to the centre-left in the mainstream. And the Socialist Party has shrunk into completely insignificant figures. Its current candidate, Anne Hildago, is polling at 2%. And this is formerly a party of government, a party that dominated the French political scene in the 80s and 90s, a party that had the presidency six years ago, and they're completely insignificant now. And Mélenchon, he's behind Le Pen. He is still in a significant position. Unfortunately, there probably isn't the groundswell around him that there was in 2017. 
though it's not over yet, but that's what it looks like. In 2017, he was close to being in the second round and would have been in the second round had the socialist candidate Benoit Hamon not split the left vote at the time the Socialist Party still looked like it might have legs. That is not the case anymore. So in the absence of a, a successful left populism, Marine Le Pen will probably dominate in parts of France that are facing deindustrialization and be able to combine those votes on the basis of apathy as well with richer and more middle-class votes in the south of France and elsewhere. It's a similar story to the UK in that regard. You know, you have voter apathy. It's much more extreme here, but abstentionism became a serious force in the last French presidential election. I think it was the biggest voter abstention rate they've had in decades. It could well be the case again, and that could be a very significant factor in bringing down Macron, potentially, or just driving down his base, as it were. So that there's a much closer race. But yeah, we don't want to get too too lost in cephology and speculative politics about voting on the basis of polls, because as we know, it's very it's very volatile and it's hard to read even on the basis of polling. Yeah, very true. So the French election, the first round is next Sunday, it's a week from today, and then the second round is on the twenty fourth of April. So it'll be interesting to see how it turns out. I mean, Macron is running basically the standard sort of centrist, extreme centrist position, which is, or I'm not an extremist, uh, I'm extreme about not being an extremist. So it'll be interesting to see exactly how that plays out with the French electorate. Anyway, I think that's probably your lot for today, people. So thank you once again for tuning in. Thank you for listening. This was Left to Burn. Yes, and we'll be back.